Hello and welcome to Criterion. Close up. Haven't done that in a while. <laughs> I know it's been a, it's been a while, Aaron. It's good to uh, talk to you. Uh, we're here for episode number sixty, Criterion Close Up, and we're delving back into our French series number three with Julian De Vivier. So yeah, it's been a little while, Aaron. Nice to talk to you, man. Likewise, man. How you doing? Good, good, very good, very good. We're getting into springtime. And speaking of springing, we have uh, a couple of springy guests uh, with us today. <laughs> uh, Mr. David Blakesley from Criterion Reflections and, of course, Criterion Cast. Welcome, David. I'm happy to bounce in the house. Uh, thanks for having me back on. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thanks for bringing the, the, the spring. And uh, Trevor Barrett from the Mooks and the Gripes and also Criterion Cast. Uh, it's nice to have you back, Trevor. Hey, thanks. I'll try to try to keep my audio clear this time. It's been a while. <laughs> I don't want to no, hunt this episode. No I want to be a time. part of it. Yeah, we have the real Trevor. The real Trevor. In the flesh, sort of. In, in person. <laughs> yeah, so the, and this is, a, I mean, it's a really nice uh, thing that's going on here. Uh, the, the most recent Eclipse viewer uh, episode came out from criteria, through Criterion Cast with the first couple of films in that series and uh, another couple coming out and we're smack dab in the middle so it's really nice that uh you know we we can have you guys on and uh really stick with de vivier the french um 1930s films we'll talk about him a little bit uh um, some of his other films too but before we we delve into de vivier we wanted to just briefly recap what we've been doing here uh on a few we've gone really monthly for criterion close-up we're doing uh, monthly episodes where we can delve into a topic a little bit more uh we'll talk about some of the other stuff they're going on that's going on at the end of the episode but um the first couple of episodes we talked about um again this is 1930s uh, French cinema. We talked about si silent to sound, kind of that transition uh, from silent to sound in the 30s. We also covered uh, Jacques Feder, uh, Jean uh, Jean Bigot, and uh, we had Scott and I on for uh, mm -hmm. for that episode. Yeah, Scott so, was great. So that was fun. And um, we also for episode number two, we talked about uh, early Jean Renoir films. Um, so we we talked about some of his early stuff in the the 1930s, and uh, we will be getting back to Mr. Renoir. He's a man of large stature, so we will <laughs> come back to him in many ways. So, <laughs> yes, yeah. So, um, so yeah. But this is this is our uh, Julien de Vivier uh, episode, where you know a little bit of a forgotten uh, director in uh, French cinema. I mean, this is really his most well-known period in the 1930s. Uh, so we'll be delving into that some more, really supplementing what um, Trevor and David and Aaron, nice to hear you on there, uh, been talking about in the Eclipse Viewer, Viewer series. Um, but uh, we'll get into him in a little bit. What we wanted to do first was kind of talk about the availability of his films. Uh, he is a little forgotten uh, with the, the stature of some of the other directors like Rene Claire and uh, Renoir, of course. Uh, but uh, he's someone that bears uh, talking about. Uh, but <laughs> trying to find his films is a little more difficult. Mm -hmm. Aaron, uh, you did a little research um, to uh, uh, into his his stuff. So where did you what did you find? Yeah, I went on a little uh, Easter egg hunt. Um, <laughs> and by oh, the way, cool. we're recording on Easter weekend, so um, that that's where that comes from. It's probably not going to be coming out on Easter. 
But uh, yeah, unfortunately, um, he is a little more obscure and uh, and I think unfairly obscure. I think he deserves more attention. So I'm really glad that we're doing this. And, and again, thanks, David and Trevor, for joining and participating in this. But um, so he, of course, Criterion, the, probably the most recent uh, American release is the Criterion Eclipse series, number 44, which was uh, De Vivier in the 30s. And that had uh, four films, uh, two of which we already talked about, and we'll mention those later. And there are going to be two that we'll be talking about in, in really the third part of this little side series on De Vivier. Uh, so that, that'll come out soon. Uh, then we, and that, of course, is DVD only. That's the last Eclipse release. Uh, there's a Criterion DVD of Pepe Lamoco, but that's only DVD. It uh, came out in 2003, Spine 172, uh, which I did rewatch again. I still have the DVD, and it definitely feels like an older Criterion DVD. It has mm-hmm. supplements with uh, with text, with like a book inside the supplements, which is a little weird to see. Uh it is available on there. He has a few films on on Filmstruck. Uh, of course, many from the Eclipse set and or a couple from the the Eclipse set. I think not all of them, but in, in addition to the ones that aren't on physical media, there's also Anna Karenina, which was a later 1948 film, and then uh, Lydia from 1941, which I think you mentioned that on uh, on the last episode, David. Uh, that was one with Merle Oberon, mm-hmm. uh, one American film. Yes. Uh, and then there was also a, a, a trio of Pathé releases, and these, are, of course, are French. And now I think these are region-free. Um, I'm not positive, so if, if you buy them and it doesn't work, don't blame me. <laughs> but when I, when I looked at, watched them on my computer, it did ex- take the disc. So um, sounds like or feels like it's region-free. Uh, so that's La Belle Equip and La Fin du Jour, which we'll be talking about today. Uh, those are, both have English subtitles. And there's a third one called... Uh, Oh boy, uh, Voici le Tom Assassin. Uh, I think Voice of the Assassins. I don't, I don't know. Um, and that one is also Blu-ray, but that that does not have English subtitles. So you better be um, better at your French than I am if you want to buy that one. <laughs> uh, there are some American releases. I, I've seen La Fin de Jour. I'm not, not sure actually if that's American or French. Uh, it's, you can find them on eBay, so it might be region free. Uh, uh, actually, the Le Fin du Jour Pathé release is out of print, I think. At least it's very expensive, and the other two are reasonable, like maybe 15 euros or so. Um, uh, there's also a French Blu-ray of Panique, uh, which I believe is going to come out on Criterion. Um, I'm not positive, but earlier this year, uh, Rialto announced a, a tour of Panique, which was 1946, I think. I don't have it in front of me, but that's my memory. Uh, there's also a French Blu-ray of, uh, of, of course, Panique, and there's also one of uh, Incarnate du Ball, which is dance program in English, and that's also on the uh, the Du Vivier clip set. You can also find uh, La Bandera on French. Uh, actually, I added that to my wish list. I'm not positive if it has English subtitles, so I'm going to research that before I buy it. Um, and then, of course, his later work, uh, his American work, in, or English language, I should say, uh, those are all pretty much readily available on DVD and a couple on Blu-ray. Uh, there's Anna Karenina. That's a, a, available on a American Blu-ray. And then uh, The Great Waltz, which was we'll probably get into that a little bit. Uh, there's also uh, Le Fin du Jour. Uh, there's a Don Camillo um, set that uh, that has Ferdinand. So he's, uh, there's some box sets of him. And uh, also there, one of his later films, Marie Octobre, 
October or October if you're English, <laughs> uh, 1959 I believe, and that one is pretty much available. Uh, but he's he's made about I think 50 something films, and so we have maybe I don't know a dozen that we I have think access. I to. saw the number 70, maybe going back to some of his early silence or something like that. Uh, can I add one more to the mix of the uh, titles? Yeah, Super there's play. an Ellen Delon five film collection from Studio Canal came out several years ago. It might be out of print because I think Amazon has it going for almost $79. I don't think that was even the original retail. But uh, uh, de Vivier's final film, uh, Diabolically Yours, uh, starring Alain Delon as part of this collection. And I'm fortunate enough to own it and uh, haven't watched it yet. I may watch it uh, in time to maybe talk a little bit about it uh, for our next Eclipse Viewer episode as we kind of wrap up de Vivier's career. But uh, that is out there if you want to see the elderly uh, Julien de Vivier uh, <laughs> directing the you know beautiful and, and uh, classic Alain Delon. In fact, this is a 1967 film, same year that Le Samurai came out. So hmm. uh, kind of an interesting connection there. Yeah, the, the cover of the set is uh, has Alain Delon in all his glory. So if you're yes, a, a, yes. a fan, <laughs> you want something <laughs> on your shelf, there he is. <laughs> so Hopefully well, cool. more. I, I, would you guys agree that uh, De Vivier could use some more physical releases? Absolutely. Well, yes. It's after after having a chance to watch uh, La Belle Equipe and uh, La Fin de Jour, uh, absolutely. These are magnificent films. Yeah, I mean, we're going to get into those. Yeah. It's too bad because these these are they're beautiful to watch. So they would do great on physical media on some nice Blu-ray releases. Um, you know, they're just they've they've got so much of that French countryside. Um, you know, they're they're got classic performers at, at the peak. You know, with Jean mm -hmm. Gabin and sure. Michel Simon, Charles Vanel. Uh, you know, we'll get into to, Bauer, to some of, of them course. today. Yeah, Harry Bauer. Um, you know they. They need to be out there. These are these are treasures that um, deserve to to be to be out there for for anyone seeking for them. Yeah, with the Pathé restorations, I, I'm not sure how the rights work, but from what somebody told me, is that often if there are English subtitles on the French release, that means it's unlikely to come out in America. I, I don't, I haven't really tested that theory, but uh, but if there are not English subtitles, then it's possible. So hopefully, hmm. yeah, it hopefully would be great to. See, you know, Criterion Blu-rays, even uh, another <laughs> clip set, you know, would be great. But uh, we'll see. Yeah. Filmstruck. So, yeah, let's talk about uh, De Vivier. We're going to be talking about, really, his 1930s work. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about some of his later work, too. But I uh, thought I'd jump into a little summary of De Vivier uh, before we get into the films themselves. Um, some of what uh, – and I'll, I'll mention sources a little later, but some of what I was looking at was – um, the, his career resembled Jacques Fader a bit, someone that we talked about uh, mm -hmm. in the first episode. Uh, he's interested in the, uh, I like this, this line, the tragic plights of isolated individuals. Um, so certainly follows a, a certain character in, uh, in many of his films, although uh, in others there are quite a few. Um, and also in a direct uh, social context. So uh, you could also consider the characters as someone trying to break out of a trap, so to speak, um, sort of embattled individual. So, and there is some, uh, really during this decade of the 1930s, uh, some folks 
looked to him and accused him of being a bit of a nihilist uh, pessimist <laughs> during this <laughs> kind of harsh uh, this harsh decade of the 1930s. So he wasn't alone. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So um, and a little bit more on him. He he was born in Lille. Uh, it's in the French North in uh, in France. He was educated at a, a Jesu- Jesuit college and then uh, off to Paris. Um, he actually started as a uh, he was a stage actor in Paris in 1915. Uh, it's interesting on the Pepe Lamoco disc. There's an interview that uh, short interview where he says, "Well, he, he wasn't very good at, at acting." Uh, mm-hmm. But then when I was, you know, checking my sources, I'm reading Republic of Images, he says that uh, they said that he was good, but he didn't like it. So who knows um, what the... Yeah. I read somewhere he is. couldn't remember his lines or something like that. <laughs> he did Always mention a problem that for an actor. his memory was not good. In that interview, he, he talked about how he couldn't remember his old films. Uh, of course, I'm thinking, well, give me something, J- Julian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, you know, he's... Here we are. You know, he moved from uh, acting over to uh, to di- to directing. So it's at 1918. He moved to cinema. He was a became a screenwriter, assistant director um, to Louis Fouillard and mm-hmm. uh, Marcel Lebierre. Um I'm going to try to roll my R's. I I uh, <laughs> I, I, I want to. I really need to um, see if I can match uh, Trevor on the Eclipse Viewer. He was rolling his <laughs> R's pretty nicely. So. Oh, thanks, thanks. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna leave leave you. I'm gonna leave you to uh, to that. <laughs> My R's will be R's. <laughs> thanks, Aaron. <laughs> uh, and his first film uh, wasn't very well received. That was 1919. Um, so it was Hassel Dama ou le Prix du Sang. Um, but in, into the 1920s, he actually made 21 silent films. So if you think about a whole decade, I mean, that's, that's about a, a, a film, um, or two films a year. And mm-hmm. one of those was, uh, lost in a fire. Um, one of the notable releases was, uh, again, penned by Jules Renaud that, uh, you guys mentioned was, uh, Poix de Carette that he would remake again that was 25 that he would remake it in the 30s uh released in the eclipse set and that uh that version was actually adapted by Ferder that i mentioned um and then from that point in the um the silence he was invited to film dot uh the production company by uh, marcel uh, vendel and charles delac so that was the the 1920s. Were there any films in the 20s that you had seen, uh, Aaron, that you wanted to to mention? No. Did I mention that there's not a lot of available? So I, yeah, yeah, I haven't seen any. I, in fact, I haven't found any. So, but yeah, I, I have. Same here. From what I understand, that his 20s films were okay, but they were, I, I guess you could say, unremarkable. Uh, they didn't really signify the, the director he'd become. So I think he was probably just honing his craft, and then. Really, I think he flourished in the sound years, uh, like unlike some other directors that didn't. Yes. They're yeah. silent directors that didn't. Yeah. So like you said, I mean, getting into the 1930s in sound, he uh, he really he excelled at uh, narrative clarity and uh, dramatic construction. So going into sound, that was kind of favored by the talkies. So, um, But he didn't really sacrifice it at the expense of some of the, you know, the silent uh, influence of, of stylistic effect and formal experiment so he was mm-hmm. he became noted as a it is important director during this time frame and uh, as you um you know the, you discussed during the eclipse viewer um he also during this time he had uh, 
uh, La Bandera um, that you'd mentioned air in 1935 starring Jean Gabin. So uh, we'll be talking about more of the films here. A um, couple other things about the just the overall of uh, his overall career. Uh, his first major success was David Goldair, which was we, we talked about um, in the uh, you talked about in the Eclipse Viewer. So it kind of makes sense to start there. Um, his Pepe Lomoco success uh, got him an invitation to MGM uh, later in the 30s. So he 1938, uh, he did work on um, go to uh, the U.S. for The Great Waltz, which was a biography of Johann Strauss. A little, little rolling of the R there. <laughs> um, and then into uh, 19, uh, early 1940s, 42, uh, The Tales of Manhattan and Flesh and Fantasy. So U.S. Um, titles there, and that was uh, 42 and 43. Uh, a little bit into again, just just an ov- uh, overview. In the, uh, after nineteen or after World War II, he did return to France, but he had uh, some trouble re- really reintegrating uh, with the the scene there because there were other established directors who remained in France. So um, there was that uh, Panique, nineteen forty six, as you mentioned. That's uh, mm-hmm. Michel Simon, uh, and, and um, also penned by. Um, Charles Spock, which was someone that came up during, um, again, worked a lot with Fader. I mean, he, he worked uh, all, you know, all through um, the decades, but uh, that we're, we're really covering here. But, you know, with Fader, with Le Grand Jeu, uh, Pension Mimosas, Carnival in Flanders, and also with uh, Renoir for uh, Le Grand Illusion, The Lower Depths. Um, so, you know, he was uh, certainly made his rounds with the, uh, the important French directors. Yeah, and I'd say that if if there are any uh, main writers of poetic realism, I'd say Spack and and probably Jacques Prévert, who worked with uh, with Marcel Carnet. Those are the two, and uh, and yeah, Spack actually, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, so if I'm not, sorry, but <laughs> they he collaborated a lot with Duvivier, and Duvivier wrote as well uh, some original screenplays and some uh, adaptations that he would collaborate with Spack, and I. I don't know exactly who wrote most of it, but uh, but I think a lot of the the poetic realist type of style probably comes from Spack, and of course the pessimism that uh, Duvivier uh, was known for and appreciated uh, that probably came from him as well. So, yeah, yeah, there was, uh, and getting into the the forties, uh, he did that film. Panique was kind of seen as a return to poetic realism, but. Um, so it was panned at the time, but is now seen as one of his greats. So it would be nice to see that coming from Criterion. It's good. <laughs> and uh, you know, briefly, uh, we in the 1950s, his films dur- did turn a little darker. Um, there's a number of, of titles there, a little harder to pronounce. Um, but um, you know, Jean Gabin again. Um, there was um, uh, Under the Paris Sky, 1951. Uh, these are the English titles, 1956, Deadlier Than the Male. Um, and we also, um, Fernandel was in um, Don Camillo, the 1951 movie that was, uh, he also showed up in um, Un Carnet de Bal in the, the 1937 mm-hmm. film from the Eclipse set. And into 1950s, um, 1957 was um, Pat Bouillet, uh, Lovers of Paris, which was um, had realism and farce, and uh, lastly, I mean, he did. He died in '67. Uh, uh, he was 71 just after finishing uh, his final film, uh, *Di Balik*, uh, *Votre*, which is di- uh, *Diabolic*, 
Diabolically Yours that uh, David mentioned uh, with uh, Mr. Elaine Delon. So nice, uh, nice symmetry there. So yeah, just you know, overall uh, review of his career, and uh, we wanted to um, any of any other uh, notes you wanted to mention about any of the films that you've seen, uh, Aaron? Or well, yeah, since we're talking specifically about the '30s, and I'd say that's uh, most people would say that's his peak period, even though he had, he did have some good uh, good work at later, like, like Panique. Uh, but there are a few that aren't available or that we, we just can't get access to that we didn't talk about uh, that we some we can't see. Uh, there's one. Uh, there's Here's Berlin, which is 32, uh, and that had Josette Day. Of course, if you've seen Beauty and the Beast, the not the Disney or the the new one, but the old one. It's she's of course is famous for that. Uh, there's uh, actually uh, Maria Chapdelaine, 1934, uh, pastoral Quebecois. Um, it was was um, about Trapping, farming, actually had an early supporting role from uh, Jean Gabin. Of course, he, uh, well, I'm not going to say it, but if you know uh, Gabin's career, it's very, his character genesis is actually pretty typical in that film. But of course, he wasn't very well known then, um, and he would work a lot with de Vivier in addition to, of course, Renoir. Uh, you mentioned La Bandera, that was 35, uh, which was uh, another adaptation with uh, Spack. Uh, actually, that one had uh, Pierre Renoir, uh, uh, Jean's brother, and that was the only the only one uh, that uh, the only time they worked together. And I think that one's seen as a, a better example of poetic realism. And then there's uh, the Golem, which is a seems like kind of an outlier. Uh, one one critique that he gets is that a lot of people say his films are kind of one note. You know that pessimism you mentioned. So this one is definitely different. It's a monster movie about a golem that protects Jewish people in Prague, kind of like a deliverance from captivity sort of Jewish tale. So, And then, as you mentioned, The Great Waltz, he went to America. He didn't like it, came back, and then, of course, the occupation happened, and he left again to America and made, made do. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's his career really in a nutshell. Uh, we also we thought we'd talk a bit about French history during this period, again, kind of setting the stage into uh, what he was, um, you know, the period that he was working. Yeah. And I'll try to be brief here because uh, I think you and I are talking a lot and Mark, or, sorry, Mark, David and Trevor are uh, being silent here. Feel free to jump in, guys, if you have any comments on the politics. I'm just learning. <laughs> okay, you're just listening, nice. just like the rest of them. So, okay, well, 1930s France was uh, not not the best decade. Kind of, kind of ugly, kind of depressing. Uh, well, literally depressing. Uh, the depression had hit. Uh, in fact, it it hit France a little later than most countries. It set in by about 1931. Uh, it did impact the the film industry, and we actually haven't talked about that. But uh, a lot of the early French films were made on really shoestring budgets. Uh, some were filmed in other countries just because the studios were struggling, barely staying afloat, and uh, and sometimes they couldn't. Sometimes they they just had to be, operate by the uh, the skin of their teeth, or what's that expression? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I'll jump in there just a little bit because you know the French film industry in the late twenties, early thirties really did try to get up and compete directly with Hollywood. I think uh, mm -hmm. Abelganza's uh, Napoleon was mm -hmm. a pretty good example of trying to make a world-class epic. And then uh, the uh, Les Miserables films that uh, we talked about with Mark a couple mm -hmm. years back were yeah. really an, an effort to say, okay, France can make you know big-time epic you know spectaculars on a scale with Cecil B. DeMille or whoever else you want to throw at them. 
but those films just you know even though they did well they 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 weren't the global successes that hollywood was able to produce and so yeah the the french film industry did kind of have to downscale a bit and i think Mm -hmm. yeah that may have lent itself to some of the pessimism like hey we gave it our best shot (laughs) here's where we're at you know uh but you know I personally just I love that that uh, kind of dark, somewhat cynical uh, perspective. I think they they really cornered the market on that, especially since you know by this time, by the time the the films that we're going to be talking about, uh, you know, the Hollywood uh, the Hayes Code had settled in mm-hmm. and had put some pretty you know rigorous clamps on freedom of expression, and uh, that you know the French films were not bound by those same restrictions, and because of that. For films of this era, they are remarkably refreshing and and really still feel very modern. I mean, there are certainly aspects of them that feel dated and of their time, but boy, you don't see some of these things being talked with as much candor and frankness, mm-hmm. and really just an adult sensibility as what you get out of Hollywood. Even though Hollywood made so many great films during the same time, there was also socialism that had taken root in France, and uh, that was more a response for, by uh, to the fascism in Germany. Of course, I think everybody knows about that. Uh, and there was this uh, this movement called the Popular Front, and this had basically united the really all the moderate to far left wing parties. And in uh, 1936, they they united and won a majority in the elections, and they placed uh, Leon Blum in power. He was a socialist. Uh, so this was basically, you know, two thirds of the the political sphere was opposed to the fascist. Uh, so the, the party was very uh, tried to represent the workers, uh, institute some changes. Uh, they they added the forty hour work week, uh, paid holidays, things that we are pretty used to. Mm. Um, but of course, the and, and there was a, a strong uh, communist party presence, even if the government was not strictly communist, like in in Russia. But uh, but of course, they were trying to cater towards the far left and the moderate. Uh, so that was tough to manage. So they tried to control prices that uh, that didn't go well with the left wing people, and then they tried to increase wages, which uh, that basically pissed off the moderates and right wing. So uh, they they had a little currency problem. It devalued, not like it was in Germany, not hyperinflation, but I think it devalued about thirty percent. And so uh, Bloom lost all his power. He resigned in '37, and of course the the new government formed uh, was still liberal, but not as liberal. And then the economy grew some towards the end of the decade. Uh, a lot of that, I think, people see that as escalating tensions in Germany. So the, the war munitions uh, were starting to ramp up, and that uh, boosted the economy some. And of course, uh, the, France declared war on Germany in 1939. So there was, um, so yeah, I, I think if you watch, look at French films, and as you mentioned, David, the uh, the, the lower budgets, I think that helped foster the creativity in, in these films, and and also the pessimism, I think, was reflected in reality, and we see that in film. So, uh, so yeah, ugly decade, but some beautiful films came from it. Nice, nice, excellent. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, we thought we would uh, really delve into, well, start with just a brief recap of the Eclipse Viewer uh, episode. We covered a, a couple of, of films there. I was going to just give just a very quick short take. But, uh, David, do you want to uh, just a, a brief recap of uh, the discussion there, getting into that? Yeah, well, the the, the two films we discussed, uh, David Goldair and Paul de Carat, or The Redhead or Carrot Top, hmm. uh, really represent de Vivier's transition into the sound era. Uh, one of them of an adaptation of a what was a best-selling novel at the time, and uh, David Gildare. 
kind of the story of a very rich uh, Jewish businessman who uh, goes through some family strife and also some uh, financial intrigues and and some uh, you know some some competition within the business world and it's kind of a, a character study I guess you could say some of the uh, you know some of the torments that he goes through as he recognizes that even all his wealth cannot you know satisfy the needs uh, of a human heart uh, yeah we had some pretty positive things to say about really both of these films and uh, definitely welcome listeners to catch up with the eclipse viewer most recent episode just came out uh, this past week if you haven't had a chance to listen to that yet uh, we do get pretty deep into those films i don't know that we're going to go quite as detailed today since we've got a few more to cover and and uh, this is a little bit more of an overview but uh you know aaron you had said uh in that episode that if we like those first two we're in for greater things and and uh yeah i i definitely I, looking back now even with the films that we've watched in preparation for this episode yeah they were like apprentice works compared to the real the real greatness of de vivier that's on display in these, in these <laughs> i yeah, was worried I, oh yeah oh no no i i completely yeah i i feel like yeah well and i think i even said something like you know you get the impression of a of a director with great talent and potential but he's still building towards his masterworks and i i think uh that's yeah, that's the tra- tra- the trajectory that we're on here, and uh, yeah, it was a good discussion and uh, a nice in-depth uh, conversation about films that might have slipped past a lot of people's radar. Definitely, yeah. And you know, just briefly to to touch on those movies again, was glad to follow along with you and watching the Eclipse series set, um, watching David Goldair. It was nice to see, you know, really for me the return of Harry Bauer after we talked yes, about indeed. him uh, during the Raymond Bernard uh, discussion and uh, Les Miserables. Just love seeing him on screen again, and he you know pops up in some of these films. Um, one of the I had a little help from again from Republic of Images because I was thinking of uh, Goldaire and what we saw, uh, which you know th- this is a, a thing we've talked about in some of the past episodes. But we see the you know the Soviet style montage, uh, expressionist lighting, of course, the camera movements. Um, I think they are subtle, uh, but they are there, uh, and the American style dialogue editing and some remarkable landscapes and i I think all of it very uh very subtle not uh not not in your face uh, for sure and i i I did like uh one thing i noted is uh you know during some of those remarkable landscapes we saw a bit of the the rhythm of the countryside uh which i think is also obviously captured very well in the renoir film uh a day in the country so that was uh that was nice to see and uh, I I really liked the in Goldair I liked the kind of bookends you know Goldair's life uh, really how it started and it's bookended uh, at the end too as you guys had uh, had mentioned so um, yeah that was that was great uh, and I, I did like uh, it seemed like you could tell this was an early silent film because there was it seemed to capture more of the diegetic sound I think with like the feet on the floor shuffling um, mm-hmm. during the uh, the dance there so. Um, yeah, interesting. Yeah. And, and those passages of film where they just don't put any sound in there at all because yeah. that was back in the day when every bit of sound was like a budget add-on. <laughs> so if we can get away with two minutes of no sound or very minimal sound, they'll just go ahead and cut that corner. You see that in films like M and, and many others of like that 1929, 30, and, 31 era. And La Chienne, sure. too. That that had direct sound and uh, kind of the same, same situations, but I think it worked out. Yeah. And uh, uh, Paul de, de, de Carotte, 
Um, that is the redhead and or directly translated Carrot Top, 1932. This uh, subjectively, I would say, maybe even compared to some of the other movies, was my favorite. Uh, I actually have a, a family member who had a similar situation when they were growing up. So it really just hit home for me. And, you know, of course, a coming-of-age movie like this uh, was just easy to really tie into. Um, I really, some of the sequences in that one where, um, you know, the superimposition where he's kind of talking to himself, uh, you see kind of the angel and the devil uh, <laughs> almost there, uh, that that was just great. I, I would have actually loved to have seen some more um, shots like that in some of the the other films that we had seen. Uh, I don't remember them being there, so that was that was nice to see. But uh, yeah, that that one really, really, I really took to that one. It was a, it did seem a bit much as thing, things uh, kind of, um, well, the you know the plot really ramped up towards the end there, as um, you know, and you guys did did mention how things go, and it's um, it was almost a bit heavy. Uh, but I was so invested. I think uh, uh, Trevor said, you know, white knuckled as things were really uh, ramping up there at the end. So, yeah, really interesting uh, story there. Again, Harry Bauer there as the uh, the father, and um, yeah, just some great uh, great performances there. So, big big fan of that one. Again, like I said, subjectively. But nice. let's let's get into uh, the the films that we really wanted to to talk about. We are going to go in order here. Um, and we're, we're getting into just the Eclipse Viewer covered a couple of the earlier films, 1930, 1932, with the two films I mentioned. Uh, we're actually getting into the late 30s with some of the films that we're talking about today. Um, so we've got um, uh, La Belle Equip, um, which translates to They Were Five. Uh, that one does star the aforementioned Jean Gabin. Uh, Charles Vanel, uh, that was written by Duvivier and uh, Charles Spock. So, yeah, I really just... Really quickly, um, Mark. Yeah, that's uh, just I was going to turn it to you anyway, Trevor. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say, La Belle Equipe is actually the great team, if it's a literal translation, that, that they were five is just a, just an American title that they've thrown on it, or maybe it was British, I don't know, an English title <laughs> that they threw on it. That makes they, sense, yeah. That certainly they're kind of translate. synonymous. <laughs> well, I guess they both kind of work, I guess. Yeah. So, Trevor, yeah. Well, if we're um, talking about basketball. <laughs> <laughs> or hockey. Give us give yeah. us your, your thoughts on uh, La Belle Equipe. Well, so this one I, it kind of came to me with the, the largest reputation of them all, including any of the ones in the Eclipse viewer. And I had seen Pepe Lamoco quite a while ago, even before I really registered that it was Julien Duvivier. So La Belle Equipe is the one that every everyone seems to say is is Duvivier's masterpiece. So I, I started it up, and I'm, I'm watching the cast, and I'm thinking, oh, there's Jean Gabon. That, that sounds great. Charles Vanel. Um, all of this, uh, this anticipation. And... I got to say, it paid off. <laughs> I didn't want to, didn't want to, uh, to uh, lead you on too far there. This is a fantastic film. Um, I can definitely understand, you know, um, why people consider this his masterpiece. Uh, I may be a little bit like Mark in that the one I prefer the most uh, could be Paul de Carat. That one just has 
has something personal in it to me that, that strikes with me. But as far as just a fantastic film, you know, kind of uh, overall, uh, this one is, is phenomenal. And so I'm very anxious to, to hear what you guys thought. And in particular about um, the two endings, apparently. You know, mm. we've been talking about Duvivier's pessimism. And um, I didn't get a chance to watch both endings, but apparently this one has two. One that was filmed to placate um, the studio and and the audience that was optimistic. And one that I'm pretty sure I watched. At least I hope I watched the pessimistic <laughs> yeah, one. It's darker than that. Wow. <laughs> it's darker yeah. than this one. <laughs> yeah, I'd well, be surprised. I don't but want to spoil one that's it. That's a but, little uh, bit yeah, more... Yeah. We we do need to avoid spoilers because yeah. these are films that you want to discuss. I, I won't. Own. I'm not going to spoil it. But um, uh, but yeah, one one that is is much darker. One that um that is probably a little bit more in line with what we might expect. Uh, not to say it's predictable, uh, because that's something that um, I think all of these films have in common. I didn't really know where they could go. The they could be, you know, who who's going to do what? Who's going to 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 be somewhat honorable, who's maybe not going to be, what's going to be the reasons for them. And La Belle Equipe is, is just a, a great kind of um, teamwork picture mm. um, uh, with a great cast of people trying to work together who run into some difficulties. Um, I, I didn't get into the plot at all there, but I, I, I'm not sure if I was supposed to or if I was just supposed to kind of give you my, my, broad, um, my broad strokes. I think we can set it up, you know. It's mm-hmm. basically, uh, you know, the, the We Were Five kind of uh, and the beautiful team or the great team uh, with the literal translation really is just kind of, a you know, a, a story of brotherhood and camaraderie and bonhomie and all that great stuff. Uh, you know, five men from the kind of struggling working class. Uh, you know, the, the opening scenes are kind of in this Parisian tenement, uh, this really great set with this big staircase and these apartments and people all scrapping and scraping by and and just kind of takes you to renoir's the lower depths oh absolutely right yeah and and each each man each each actually man and woman everybody's just this distinctive character you know they just have some unique quirk about them and and some little side hustle that's getting them by and and uh you know the emotions are on the sleeves and and the you know everything's just you know very vigorous and and uh, you know, flamboyant, but but not in an over-the-top way. But just you know, these are just people in, in the midst of life and and living it with gusto. And then uh, the amazing thing happens that uh, you know, a share of a lottery ticket that several of them had bought in on pays off, and and they strike fortune. And all of a sudden, they have this opportunity for their dreams to come true. And uh, you know, they they each briefly indulge in a sort of a private fantasy of what they're going to do with all their loot and then they kind of come up with a new idea one day while they're rowing down the the river Seine uh, on the outskirts of Paris kind of downstream from the big city and they come across a little uh, house uh, a structure that's been kind of fire damaged and they say hey we could buy this and and make a was it a guignol or something like that? The guinguet, I think is the word. Uh, a little country inn, kind of a, a recreational place to get away from it all and, and have a, a cup of wine and, and a good meal and, uh, you know, some, some, some fellowship and a little bit of dancing, a little bit of music, a little uh, day in the country, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's, and that's the, basically the idea is that they're just going to pool their resources, have a little slice of uh, heaven on earth and, uh, 
and it is just absolutely riveting. I mean, this this film really is like everything I could ever want in a 1930s French film. It, to me, it's 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 like one of my favorite French films of all time. And when I say wow. that, it's like one of my favorite films of all time because every element just completely hits it. And I'm just like, yeah, there's nothing about this movie I don't absolutely love. That's great. <laughs> You delivered including, it, including 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 the 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 harsh endings and including the yeah. very jarring transitions from life is wonderful, everything's great, to all of a sudden, oh my god, what just happened? <laughs> There's yeah. a few of those, you know, uh, these well, stunning reversals, but they never feel excessively manipulative or heavy-handed. It just it's it is a kind of a a, a larger portrait of of how life can take us on unexpected journeys through one small twist of fate. Yeah, they've got great rhythm. You know, I never felt like it was jarring either. It just, it's fairly smooth, and the the film breathes. Everything breathes. There's open space. There's air, and it just it feels, it feels quite the way life feels. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's going along just fine one moment, and then something, something happens, and the, the, every uh, the perspective changes. It's great. Yeah, it's kind of like Grand Illusion in that it, there's a. Uh, a collective, a group, and there's some some camaraderie, and uh, and you and there's also conflict, of course. And in this one, there's also uh, some women in the way. Um, they're not too nice to the women, but yeah. Uh, yeah, anyway, yeah, true. don't want, don't want to get too in the weeds. Uh, one thing I, I I found interesting is I the lottery winnings. Uh, they won a hundred thousand francs, and I thought, wow, that doesn't sound like a whole lot. So I I, I looked it up and 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 looked up the the inflation and the the currency. And actually, um, if you just go, it equals out to about a hundred thousand dollars today. So yeah. they basically got twenty thousand dollars a piece. So that's, uh, of course, that's a, a probably a pretty big sum for blue collar, uh, lower class workers. But you know, they can't. It's not something they can retire on. It actually knowing no, that right. puts puts right. the plot and um, makes it, the plot easier to understand too, because they they do. And I don't want to give too much away or get too into it, but they do run into obstacles with the money. So, right. I'm glad you liked it. I, having recommended it so uh, so highly, I, I, I saw on Letterbox that a few people didn't like it that much, and I thought, oh man, I hope this is not just me. No, <laughs> so no I feel a little I, redeemed. I'm, I'm completely on board with it because you're right. There's just these different elements. I mean, there's the urban and there's the rustic. There's mm-hmm. the the comedy and the tragedy. I mean, even the little the little song. I mean, this the opening theme song you hear on the accordion and the Jean Gabin and a couple of his. Uh, you know, comrades kind of give a little vocal rendition and the song kind of filters in and out. And it's just, have I, have I like heard that song all my life? <laughs> I mean, this feels like the, the quintessential French, you know, film song, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, it, you know, it's just, just that little rollicking, uh, accordion driven mm-hmm. tune. And uh, it is, it's, it's just, just beautiful. I, I, I've watched it three times, you know, and, and oh, wow. uh, I, I really, really do wish I could have the, the full edition, have access to the full edition and, and with if, supplements, if and, gonna, yeah. yeah, the supplements and the context, the alternate endings, the nice essay, yeah, uh, yeah. the, the handsome packaging, there is nothing in any of the, the criterion genre noir films, uh, that, you know, that this film, I think maybe other than lasting reputation along the lines of rules of the game or grand illusion where those are towering masterpieces of world cinema and everybody knows them and loves them and respects them at least uh, this film to me is is 
absolutely on a parallel with those. Maybe maybe the themes aren't as grand as the uh, you know Grand Illusion and the War and and the, mm-hmm. the rules of the game had all the censorship and the kind of in your face confrontation of of uh, you know the, the Nazism and all of that. But but there's something so so uh, fundamental about this film about just the you know the, the 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 pressures of 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 relationships and and of love and strife and and jealousy and mm. and and trying to keep it all in balance uh i was really 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 impressed and and just really enjoyed the time i spent watching this film hey guys uh um i have a, a leak on my roof do you guys mind laying on top of it and uh, stopping it. <laughs> people the best have seen, night of my life. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very end joke for people who have seen La Belle Equipe. So, yeah, Absolutely, please seek it out, yeah. uh, listeners that uh, that yeah. haven't seen it. I, now I feel, uh, again, redeemed. It passed the Blakesley test and the Trevor test. Actually, did, did it pass the Herney test? You, you have oh, to... absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I like this a lot. Um, you know, it, it just it certainly gets to the the fatalism um, that is, um, you know, nineteen thirties French French film and well, a lot of a lot of French film. But uh, and you know, it just something that is this whole um, scene, this whole friendship, this whole uh, endeavor. There, you know, it's just too beautiful to happen. Is what I added in my notes. You know, it's just. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, pretty, pretty amazing. And I did, uh, also a uh, little symmetry carrot top shows up. Um, so we get, uh, late in the film, oh, carrot top. um, <laughs> uh, Robert Lennon, who no, don't scare our him. listeners away. Not that carrot top, but yeah, we see him later. And, uh, also just a, a use of a, an X wipe that I don't know if I've seen, uh, in quite some time, I just noted that nice, nice uh, yeah. use of a you know un, often unseen wipe. So I, I'm with you. It's uh, really, really, really good. Glad we got a chance to watch it. And actually, since I just talked about the politics, and I, I when I listened back to the Eclipse viewer, I was a little one note talking about the political significance. But uh, but of all his films, I think this is the one that that absolutely reflects the political realities. I, others have the pessimism, but they don't really speak to the the current situation. But this one, I actually I, I don't think I know it, it was actually made uh, during the uh, the po- uh, the Popular Front's. Uh, Rise to power, and so he was speaking to, I guess, the controversies that uh, that were happening during that time. And and you can kind of, if you if you analyze it, you can kind of see that uh, there's some things are are ideal, some things are not, and uh, and there are perils with uh, commonality. Or so, but it it also this was before the downfall of the Popular Front when this came out. So I, even though there's a little bit of pessimism. Uh, it wasn't really realized in society yet, so I guess in that respect, he kind of uh, saw things coming. So anyway, getting close. Do you mind to spoilers. if I ask you a question on on that? Sure. Um, I, I read somewhere, and I don't know how. I don't remember where, so I don't remember with what authority this person said that. But you know, Duvivier himself was was not a leftist, and that you know, while there's the politics in this film, it may have come more from Spack that Duvivier was was more interested in the the personal politics and things like um, just getting by in life that anybody in any time period would would recognize, particularly when there's a woman involved um, with a group of men, and that that that's and to be honest, that's the that stuff that struck me as well. It was it was they there are things so so listeners can know that even if you're not up on your French politics. 
this film still has a lot going for it as far mm -hmm. as um, just general human concerns that we all go through. Um, maybe not to the same degree, um, but they're <laughs> recognizable. You know, David's, David's response um, leads me to think that maybe this is what what you got out of it too, David, was, was you know, think jealousies and, and love and, and trying to be compassionate. You know, you've got the police officer who's there to enforce the law, but who, who seems to pity the situation as well. Um, that they're, yeah. that, that, yeah. that, that everyone's kind of going through. He doesn't want, he doesn't think they're bad people. And he just thinks of, oh, geez, you know, we're all supposed to be living here on this earth. Yeah. He identifies. Um, but I'm, I'm supposed to still be someone who enforces the law, and and that line right there was was pretty powerful in in a way that that I think many people can can relate to even if they're not you know up on on French politics at the time. But but my my question I guess was um you know whether or not that statement was true that Duvivier didn't didn't seem to care for it. I'm not sure if anyone here knows or if anybody knows. Um, but maybe I've transformed it more into my own statement that it doesn't matter. <laughs> There's still an awful lot here. I think you're right that it doesn't matter. Um, but I, from what I understand of Duvivier, of course, I, I don't know him and I, don't, I didn't read any of his writings about politics. But I think it's rel he was relatively moderate, but he wasn't right wing. Um, but there are other – the film industry was very, very left wing. And in fact, uh, Prevert was basically a socialist. Uh, Renoir actually dabbled, but uh, – and we actually talked about this in the early Renoir episode a little bit. So, so I think you, when you see the mid to late thirties works, it, it's it's kind of like now you you you'll you'll see now that we're in the Trump administration, we're probably going to see some art that reflects that uh, from people that are left wing, from people that are moderate. It just reflects modern times. So I think I think it's just more texture, and I I, I agree that it's it really it, you don't need to know that to appreciate the film. It's uh, if you do, I think it maybe makes it a little more interesting, a little more curious. But uh, yeah, it's just uh, pretty much most of the French films that we talk about have some left-wing uh, drivers, but uh, they're all relatable and identifiable on their own terms. Uh, they they kind of speak to truths, as you mentioned. So nice, great. Well, that's um, that's La Belle Equipe, if I'm saying that correctly, from 1936. Um, so we move on to uh, a towering <laughs> achievement in 1937, and the only physical media release from Criterion other than the Eclipse set in uh, Pepe Lomoco, uh, and wanted to turn it to you, Aaron, to kind of set us up. Well, uh, all right, David, you, you made a pretty bold claim in uh, La Belle Equipe, uh, which I, I, I agree with, I, or I kind of agree with. I think it's an amazing film, but I th think it's my turn to make a bold claim about uh, Pepe Lomoco. Mm -hmm. uh, this was my third time watching it, and you guys know that I, I love uh, French movies, so I'm going to get a little hyperbolic here. <laughs> so, and I, and I wrote down some reasons why, but I actually think this may be I'm – still, I'm still on the fence, but I, it's in the conversation. I think it's among the greatest French films of all time, and I think it's the, the best uh, Jean Gabin, uh, Gabin uh, performance, mm -hmm. and I think it's one of the great examples of, of pre-noir, uh, kind of leading to uh, – film noir that in the 40s. And actually, I'd say Carnet had some examples too. And I'd also say that when we talk about poetic realism, which we've talked about quite a bit on this podcast or the series, I'd say this is almost the template for that. Uh, so is that uh, out of line or what do you guys no, think? No, no, I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I love this movie as well. Uh, maybe Bella Equipe 
uh, earns a bit of favor because it's just such a fresh and recent discovery for me. I've, I've loved Pepe Lamoco for a long time. Um, and, and yeah, you can't beat the setting and, and the pathos of it all. Uh, maybe, maybe I'll dock it a little bit just because of some of the, you know, um, colonialist uh, pretexts and assumptions but uh, it's it's just a, a magnificent film as well so yeah I'm, I'm not going to argue with about it <laughs> yeah i think there's the colonialism I, I think there there is a legit complaint but i think if you, you kind of have to complain about france and uh, and their culture yeah. i think it actually does reflect uh, french you know their their thoughts and ideas about the world uh, in the 1930s yeah. And and before we get into it, let me just talk about a, an earlier film that you've already referenced, uh, Aaron, uh, La Bandera, which uh, there is a YouTube version available, but it's a Spanish dub, and it's pretty fuzzy transfer, but I've actually had it rolling, and it's actually a very, I mean, even if you watch it without knowing a thing of the words that are being said, which is how I watched it, I just watched it for the visuals, and there's very interesting kind of, um, kind of, preparation or foreshadowing if you will with the with the colonial and the uh, uh apparently algerian or at least north african setting of la bandera do you know much more about the story of la bandera and how it maybe feeds into pepe Lamoco? because there are definitely some of these arabian exotic uh settings as well as a much more of a overtly military situation going on there aaron do you have much context on la bandera or not you know that's one I haven't seen, but I, oh, okay. Uh, but well, I, I, it, it's been it's in the conversation of most people say it's one of his breakthrough early works. I, it I'd say it looks Lam- magnificent. Yeah, I mean, again, yeah. uh, you know, Jean Gabin and his kind of pre-breakout form is great. He's a soldier. Uh, mm-hmm. Some other familiar faces are there, and it looks like there's some pretty good, uh, you know, intrigue and, and combat scenes and. Yeah, again, I'm just dying to to learn more about De Vivier in this period, but not to get us too off track. Sorry about that. Oh, I might have to order that uh, that that French disc, uh, but but yeah, uh, I I think uh, where where was I going? Uh, what would you ask me? <laughs> well, just basically how the La Bandera. I, I I'm sorry, I thought you had seen it, or maybe I assumed too much. But La Bandera does have some scenes that uh, seem to you know kind of be. Uh, precedent setters for you know the the deep immersion into the Kasbah and Algeria mm-hmm. and the French colonial uh, presence in North Africa uh, of the 1930s. Yeah, uh, what what about you guys, uh, Mark and uh, Trevor? Do you are you can you get behind this my bold claim, <laughs> Trevor? What do you think? Oh, I never even put it in the picture, to be honest with you. So I'm kind of processing this as you talk. Um, I love Pepe Lamoco. I think it's 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 definitely one of the earlier French 30s films that I watched. Um, I'm I am. I'll tell you this. I'm very confused about your statement that this is like the template for poetic realism. I don't understand that term fully. I've been trying right. to get it. I would have said Pepe Lamoco is where Duvivier goes off track and does something that isn't poetic realism, or at least the way mm-hmm. that I was understanding it. Um, so perhaps you can help walk me through that. Um, but but I will say I, I love the film. It, it, this is this is like a this is like Raiders of the Lost Ark for Harrison Ford. You know this is <laughs> this is Jean Gabin yeah. becoming 
the superstar and and even his introduction in the film where it just starts on his hands fiddling with some jewelry and then goes up to his very pleased face and then he gets into a little shootout and you know it's 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 fantastic and he's a scoundrel at the same time you you, you love him you might hate him too at, the, at various times you you think he's kind of a creep so so I've always kind of looked at this as more of a more of a not conventional necessarily but but kind of a, a good um a good thriller not really thriller that's the wrong word i'm 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 not quite getting the right word here because i guess it is unconventional <laughs> um but you've got a a, a charming um anti-hero who really is a, a a crook but but you like him you kind of want him to do well you know he he's got feelings he's got sure he, he's he's locked up in the casbah Everyone thinks he's there to escape and that he's free. To him, it's its own little prison. He wants to get out, but he knows as soon as he does, he's going to be captured by the police. Um, and so you've got this very, very dynamic um, story and character. Um, but, yeah, I'm not uh, – I, mean, I, I guess I'll just say to, if, if I'm looking at the the great, you know, even another Jean Gabon um, – star making role i would i would always go with uh, the grand illusion for for this great you know pinnacle of french filmmaking um world filmmaking and not pepe lamoco though to to have to defend you know against you <laughs> i don't want to go too far and say that the film i don't like it because i love this film right but um, well, but yeah if, if 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 in your conversations you know one of you wants <laughs> to throw out a a little bit of help for me with the poetic realism i would love it I can get to that, but let me let me first back up my claim a little bit. I, I agree that this, compared to a lot of the other films that are a little slower and uh, and and more like pastoral, we've talked about the the, the countryside and the, the the beauty. This one is more urban and it's more uh, it's more thrilling. It's faster paced. It's a little tighter written. Um, and and I agree. I think uh, I think uh, Pepe is a antihero. He um, he's very charming. He he attracts women. I, I, I forget the quote, but I think. Something about uh, if he died, uh, three thousand widows. Was that right? Mm. Come to his funeral, right? <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, and but then he also commanded uh, men's loyalty too. So uh, so he just kind of exuded this power, and, and I think he you see that, and, and you, you really see that on, on uh, Gaben's performance too. In fact, I, I couldn't imagine anybody else playing Gabe, oh, no. uh, playing yeah. Pepe. He's terrific. Uh, well, but he it, would command my loyalty too. Even yeah, someone absolutely. who's not a criminal, I'd be I'd. I'd be there. He'd make you a criminal. <laughs> and and it's, I think it's worth mentioning that this is actually the – this was hugely popular. Duvivier may be forgotten now, but uh, but it was – he was – this was a blockbuster for him uh, back in the time. And and this actually broke his career. Actually really, really made uh, Gabin a, a household name. Uh, a, a Grand Illusion had already come out, but I don't know if the, its impact had been felt yet. But, yeah, it is very uh, tightly wound. Uh, it's kind of a cat and mouse game with the police. Um, but the, there are things I like about it. I think it's just very – well developed. I, I like that the the bad guys and the good guys are together often, and they interact. You know, because you have the the Casbah, and then you have the uh, the the uh, really the water side is the the other location, and they're both for Pepe. They're both prisons. So if he's stuck in the the Casbah, even though he has complete power and loyalty. And he's basically untouchable. He's also stuck because he he leaves and then he goes to the real prison. But the other guys can, and I think just the, again the writing it was set up well. Uh, Sliman, uh, when he comes through, and he actually kind of like the pol the police in uh, La Bella Quip, he can relate, and there's a little bit of mutual respect for between the two. Uh, 
but there also he has a job he has to uh, and he wants to capture pepe that's his his big fish and and there's other other uh there's some some characters that are that betray pepe and 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 the audience is on to it a little bit but the but it, but pepe actually has hints of it but uh, may may not know exactly and so i think there's a lot of subtle conflict and i think it's kind of palpable it it actually kind of reminds me of the uh some hitchcock suspense uh, mm. so i think it even though it's it is a very character based and and caban is the the main character um and he's the star as he should be but but it's um it is kind of a, a thrilling. It, it moves quickly. I, actually, I'm surprised. This is the third time I watched it, and it just it was over like that. Hmm. Um, so then, um, and I don't know if you any, you guys have any response to that, or if you want me to go into the poetic realism. Well, the characters that there's there there are a lot of vivid vividly drawn characters, and kind of to again paraphrase Jean Renoir, everybody has their reasons. You know, every everybody has their yeah. reasons to to both. Uh, play within the boundaries and then also to occasionally betray the the friendships and, and break the rules and to you know do the double cross because that's just what they need to do to survive and so you know even though there is this very exotic uh location setting and um this kind of thrilling peek into this forbidden world of the kasbah I think you know during the depression and during these uh, kind of the tensions of the pre-war years, uh, you know people could relate to the fact that they also were living lives of, you know sometimes uh, you know in, intense pressures and, and loyalties being tested and, and who mm-hmm. do you trust and who do you who do you have to finally turn on to make sure that your personal interests are being taken care of and so yeah you know this is a star-driven vehicle with Jean Gabin but the supporting cast is outstanding and the audience can find any number of characters that they might connect with in a more direct way than than with Pepe himself. You know, Aaron, I, I like the fact that you went there uh, because, uh, you know, you're really following up our Ozu episode when uh, Matt Gastire <laughs> said that Late Spring was the greatest movie of all time with uh, talking about Pepe Le Mocha. I'm channeling Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. No, I hmm. I mean, I, I uh, for me, I'd, I'd have to see this film again. Uh, I, this was actually the first time I had seen it. I had the DVD and just hadn't hadn't seen it before i can see where you're going um i think it really the the essay helped me a little bit and one of the things i was thinking about was the the influence on this film first was um i delved into a lot of the early a few years ago the early uh gangster films and this film is obviously um well i don't want to say obviously but i think it is influenced by the early gangster films, but in in a difference sure. of them being, um, you know, in, in this case, Pepe is more of an antihero, uh, whereas, you know, you can see uh, differences with, you know, the, the gangster characters and some of the other films. I, I mean, even referenced um, the source novel was inspired by Hawks's uh, Scarface, and you see a very, you know, different uh, different character there, but... I think, you know, with this film, some of the things that stuck out to me were, um, you know, like the Casbah is a character. Uh, and mm-hmm. similarly to Casablanca, uh, I, I, you know, thought of uh, even that way. I mean, you even have the, the start of the seas. And, of course, Casablanca came, you know, what, five years later in 42, I, th- I believe it is. So, um, yeah. And Algiers, too, was uh, – this film was remade the next year. Right. With, uh, yeah. Right. 
Yeah, and I I think uh, you know really what kind of crystallized for me, and I again I have to credit the essay for helping. Um, just the template that this movie put forth. Uh, you've got the coming into the the World War One fatalism. You have the criminal uh, d- um, criminal doom for the future uh, of film noir. So the you know the influence on film noir, like you said. Um, casually comfortable exoticism uh that certainly is there i was very taken with uh inez um mm-hmm. yeah. in, in this film um so i i kind of think of uh that the um it's much it's a mature romantic tragedy uh and you have like you said the sympathetic criminal lover hero everyone is drawn to so um, yeah, I can see how this would be uh, certainly a, a template and just a, a tentpole for this this time. I, I think its its influence is uh, is there uh, for sure. So, yeah. Well, uh, let me tackle Trevor's uh, theory. So, <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's, let that's, me that's just say I, I see that I see all that for sure. This is a this is a film noir just a few years early. Right? Yeah, yeah. Actually, <laughs> but, I, I, but I'm anxious for the next part. I think there, there are arguments that there are a lot of film noirs before noir, and, and even though noir got a lot darker, that it was basically just an extension of a lot of these films, and of course German expressionism even earlier. But uh, so anyway, as far as movements go, uh, poetic realism is a difficult movement to to um, to really define because it's really been kind of like uh, 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 noir. It actually came later the, the labeling. Of these films, and it actually was just a small percentage of the actual French output. But uh, but of course, the, a lot of the French films that have survived from the period fall into this category. But see, I, I see it as if, if I'm going to put a definition on it, I see it as very romantic, uh, very fatalist, uh, very kind of existential. That's where the reality comes in, and then poetic is really with the, uh, the community. Now you could or the the, the characters, the humanity, and uh, and sometimes. This, sometimes a tragic humanity. So I, I think, as far as the romance goes, I think uh, Pepe's the the lure of Gabby, and you know she, she he's a he's a th- jewel thief, and she has she basically has the crown jewels, mm-hmm. but she also kind of is the crown jewels, and he has to kind of choose between those, so he has a lot of temptations, and uh, and yeah, they, they I love the scene when they and I don't know if this is spoiler, but I think we can go a little further on this one. Do you guys agree? It's available. You can watch it on yeah. Filmstruck, yeah, on Filmstruck. Uh, the DVDs, you know, cheaply and common. Yeah. If if people haven't seen it, uh, you can fast forward a, a few uh, thirty seconds. But uh, so uh, I think the the scene where they're together, I think they're just that's definitely romantic poetry. But there's also a lot of visual poetry too, and I think we've seen that in other films, as you mentioned, uh, Carrot Top and 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 La Bandera, which is probably playing right now. But uh, I think this one also has a lot of uh, camera flourishes that support the the, the visual poetry. For instance, uh, a lot of times in the Casbah, the the outlines of the frame are blurred. Did you guys pick up on that? Well, yeah. Yes. There's like a sort of a tight central focus, but then kind of this haziness and mm-hmm. kind of a circular pattern. And it's like, was that intentional or what? I think I mean, it yeah. was. Yeah, it adds to the effect. It adds to the mystique, I think, and 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 as you said, Mark, uh, the Casbah being a character, it kind of you know adds to that. So I I love that. I also love the uh, the rear projection, uh, and I know that rear projection is was kind of a 
an easy escape. Uh, it's almost like bad CG today, uh, maybe in the 30s. But I think it really works here. And, and towards the end when he's walking through the Casbah. And yeah, really, it's kind of this hallucinatory, exactly. sort of swirling, you know, psychological dissociation thing going on. It's not really meant to say he's walking down that road, but he's exactly. I mean, he's visualizing his new life or what he hopes mm-hmm. to finally irrationally escape to, you yeah. know. Yeah, and and the the character of the Cosba is kind of uh, blurring into the background, and uh, and I think it's just really powerful the way that happens. And so, since we're in spoiler territory, I'd say really what uh, the, the the poetic realist aspect and really the realist aspect is the ending. Uh, it's him seeing her on the boat, them not being able to connect. You know, it's the exquisite uh, timing of it all. Right. Yeah. Right. How it all just boils to this peak moment. Yeah. It's painful and it's beautiful. It's painful. It's difficult. You you get his heartbreak. You know what he's you know, he's going to jail. He's he doesn't get this this girl his jewels. Uh, and so and he, we, what does he do? He <laughs> he decides to end it. Uh, so right. I mean, he's right there at the window. She's right around the corner. He can't see her, but he like feels her presence. But then at that very moment of connection is when he's torn away, and then the ship mm-hmm. sails on, and it's just like. Oh, it's just agonizing but exquisite at the same time. Yeah, their eyes oh, never sucks. meet at the end either. You know, she just she her back is turned yeah. and if she had just turned around she would have seen him, you know, at the gate yeah. and yeah, just the timing. Just as is... he yells the ship's horn blasts yep. and drowns it out. It's just oh, <laughs> just Yeah, it's you know, it's tragic. On. Yeah, it, it, if it, I guess you could say it's a little much, but I, I think it uh, – and by the way, Gaben, he tends to die in movies. So. <laughs> Watch out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so spoiler for any movie, uh, Gaben, not all, so I guess it's not a total spoiler. But uh, but I think this one – and I've seen him die in a few films, but I really think that you know the look on his face, uh, the, the the sweat, I, I just it, it just worked for me. And, um, and so, yeah, maybe it's tough to place this into the template, and I, I could see why why you might struggle with that. Trevor, but because uh, there is really no uh, these films, while they had the same label, they were unique. Uh, you know, Duvivier had his style, Renoir had his, Carnet had his, but uh, just just to me, I think I I really felt the uh, the poetry and the uh, the realism there. So yeah, it's really it's it's well, a term that's, that's hard to it. qualify. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I can see it in a lot of the other ones. I can see how they're distinct from you know other films being made at the time. And I guess that it's that distinction I'm failing to see here. This, you know, a lot of this, yeah, that it, I, I agree with you, poetic and, and realistic, pessimistic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm, I haven't quite connected it to a distinct movement versus things that I might see even in, you know, American film at the time, you know, Stella Dallas or something like that. Right. Now, I, I'm not saying the story. Of course, the story is very different, but, uh, but. But I, I guess as far as the tone, though, it is similar to Carnet and uh, some some of Renoir's. So, just keep watching Gaston Mado as he does the ball and cup, Trevor. I, I, I watched it throughout. That was fantastic, and, and I do and I, appreciate your you know the explanation because it's a term I've always had trouble with, and I am still trying to grapple with it. So I'm I don't want you to think that I'm saying oh you didn't you didn't explain it well. Uh, it, it isn't that it, it's i'm sure it's some something locked in 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 me that i need to unlock mm. 
Yeah, well, I, and I've read a lot about this movement, and it, it's it's a term that does get thrown around in books and so so so, so forth. But it, it is tough to nail down a definition, and I've seen a lot of conflicting definitions. So I, I think it almost, and I, I hate to say it, it's kind of like you know it when you see it in a way. Um, yeah. So, and it, often when you see uh, films from these filmmakers, uh, and Duvier is is definitely one of the um, one of the key poetic realist uh, directors, like among the four major ones, I'd say. I, it's it's one of those uh, really delving into this has been helpful for me, Trevor. I I, I feel like you. I still trying to qualify that the term, understand it, and you know we're three episodes into uh, French thirties <laughs> film, and I, I feel like I'm still still learning. And it, it really it feels like it takes delving into each one of these directors and their films to really get it uh, and what what really uh, you know qualifies as poetic realism. So I w one there was uh, getting back to. A previous episode earlier on Noir, one film I thought of uh, actually in watching this was Tony. Uh, I thought of the the two yeah. women uh, for Pepe Lamoco, how he's torn between the two, you know, between Inez and Gabby. It's like the gypsy woman versus the glamour girl, and um, you know, Tony was uh, really looking to the glamour girl as uh, Pepe does uh, in this film. So uh, and certainly some some other I, again I won't say, but the uh, <laughs> symmetry there with <laughs> with those those two films. So. Yeah, it's yeah. I, I I don't know, Aaron. It's it, like I said, I'm going to need to see it a couple times. And I I think two or three times with this film, and having seen other other films, I I think it's just for me and understanding, you know, some help from the essay. It just helps to really place this mm -hmm. film as a uh, maybe a pivot point, similar to really what Matt was talking about with uh, Late Spring. Maybe this is you know the ultimate yeah. poetic real, realism kind of pivot uh, film. So. And I think uh, Matt, when he said that about Late Spring, and he said it's the best film, but his favorite film was Tokyo Story. Right. You could kind of say that with, with the rules of the game, maybe, or Grand Illusion. So uh, I think uh, when, when we get through this series, uh, which I don't know when that'll be five years from now, but when we've gotten through uh, Carnet and uh, Late Renoir, I, I'd like to revisit the term and, and see if we mm. can uh, nail it down a little, little closer. And, and maybe that'll help you, Trevor. <laughs> Yeah, well, and poetry is hard to nail down, so maybe that's <laughs> that's part right of, part of it. So, well, how about we transition into you know we have one more film we wanted to uh, to touch on. It is uh, the last of his films in the 1930s, uh, La Fin du Jour, um, from 1939. Um, it uh, I'm not even sure what it translates into um, the end of the day. The end of the day. End of the end day. Of the day. Yep. Yeah. So in this one, uh, again, some important stars, Victor uh, Franzen, uh, Michel Simon, uh, Louis Jouvert, uh, very important film, uh, another restoration from uh, Pathé. And uh, I, this one, actually an original story from Duvivier, kind of atypical, because he typically found his uh, subjects in popular fiction. Um, so, yeah, why don't... Uh, um, and, oh, in this one, I, I'll, I'll set up a little more. It's about um, some aged and uh, penniless actors. They go to, after they really are, um, for the most part, retiring, and they're not even uh, allowed to perform, they um, are living in this uh, really old folks' home, kind of a converted old folks' home. And uh, they, of course, they talk about their, uh, their past glories, um, some failures, and there are some um, certainly some um, concerns between uh, the folks in this this film, just different ways that they uh, go about life, which uh, creates some tensions uh, in the film uh, for sure. So, 
1939, La Fin du Jour. Uh, David, I'll turn it to you first. Uh, what did you think of this film? Well, yeah, just another really splendid example of, of Duvivier's ability to put together a fantastic cast. Um, yeah, I hadn't really picked up on the fact that this was original rather than adapted material. Uh, perhaps it, it speaks a little bit of his own life in the theater. Coming up as an actor, he's been in show business, if you will, for about 20 years now and probably had ha- has had his share of encounters with... Uh, you know, aged uh, theatrical performers. I mean, in fact, some of the cast, the way that the opening credits kind of give you the sense that here are these beloved figures that many of the viewers of that time maybe had seen on stage in Paris at different times and and places. Uh, so they're coming back for sort of one last hurrah. And there's so there is a kind of a, uh, a sentimental uh, retrospective feel to this film. Uh, of people who who know that their you know their their glory days are behind them, uh, but there's still a lot of life to be lived, and and uh, this is a pretty engaging story as well. I, I mean, I enjoyed it. I you know, Michelle Simone always just seems to play old, <laughs> <You know? laughs> and and it is it's it's, it's just always a, a great joy to discover um, another uh, vintage performance of him in his prime. Of course, he's perhaps best known here as. Voodoo Save for Dro- Save from Drowning, uh, you know where he kind of plays this kind of anarchistic wild man, this tramp who's brought in to be civilized, and of course ends up uh, you know creating chaos in his wake. Uh, here he's not quite as uh, you know out of control, but he's definitely a very pivotal character. And then Louis Jouvet is kind of the other you know keynote for me as this uh, aging Don Juan mm. who, uh, you know, considers himself this kind of lady killer and uh, just will not let that game go, even though he's, you know, well past his prime. Uh, and you, you really kind of get the creepy vibes going because you see that he's not just vain and, you know, kind of self-centered, but he's actually very predatory and, and merciless as he kind of exploits whichever woman will, will uh, you know, uh, be drawn to him uh for for the sake of his own vanity so yeah to me this is you know this is just a a good interesting story maybe not quite on the sublime level that i uh, felt with la belle equipe but still beautifully rendered and and very worthy of of my time and and repeat viewing yeah trevor what did you think yeah, I'm probably with with David here. It was great to see these these three kind of actors um, performing the, these old roles. None of them were were particularly old. I mean, Shel Simone <laughs> was in his 40s. He looks he looks in his 70s in this he movie, does. and not just because of like makeup and stuff. Uh, the way he's 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 got his mouth just kind of dragging as if he's lost all all ability to really control his lips and things like that. Um, you know, none of them were particularly old and yet they, they play these roles very well. And with a lot of, of, of sentiment behind them, it, it does. And, and I'm wondering how much of this is that they kind of feel like a, an era is gone. Um, you know, they, they all did do stage acting in, in the, in their early career. I mean, they're in their forties and fifties here, but they were old enough that, that you know, as as early professionals, the film wasn't wasn't a a big well. I mean, it's a big thing, but it wasn't maybe something that actors 
um, thought they could get into, and they ended up doing it. But um, maybe there is some of that ability to reflect then that I might not normally expect um, in in people playing a character that's 20 or 30 years older than what they actually are. And and so the the performances is really where where I thought this one took off. I, I loved the the dynamic between these these three men who have known each other and who have reasons to despise one another, um, and and not even fully respect one another. I mean, sometimes the the the, the despising someone else comes because you're jealous of them, and I'm not really sure that I felt that too much here other than maybe maybe marnie thought um you know i'm the one with the talent i just didn't get famous so there is some jealousy to to you know others who had no talent but did get famous but as far as um you know the the other thing it's mostly just jealousy about you know personal things you know they've been involved in each other's lives for for so long that old bitterness and old relationships come out and are still haunting them. And yet here they are kind of uh, forced to live together to an extent because they don't have any other options. This is a private charity mm-hmm. that is set up for these kind of treasures of the world who, who are, of you know, French theater anyway, who can't support themselves any other way. And, you know, they they could go and live with other people in, in other state-run um, uh, retirement homes or, or care centers. But this is so that they can still be together and can almost still live off of the illusions of the past, um, which is a good or a bad thing depending on, on how you look at it. And and they did all of that so well. I, I really did enjoy the film. It happened to be the first one I watched. Um, mm. I while I'd seen Pepe Lamoco before this, as we were preparing for this episode, this was the first one that I watched. So I hadn't seen A Bell I Keep yet, and um, you know, so so I didn't really know what else Duvivier was was going to be doing in this mid part of the '30s and, and late part of the '30s that we're we're talking about. And and so maybe I I'm not sure how that affected it, but I was I was very pleased. But I will say that things just got better um, as I moved on through the next films. So. <laughs> so yeah. So. But I'm glad we had the chance to watch it. It's it's hard to find, and yeah. and yet it was, you know, as David said, Michel Simon. It, it, anything anything that he oh, had his hands in, I, I would great. love a chance to see it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's a lot of fun. I guess I'll, I'll I'll jump in, Aaron, and then turn it to you to see how it it compares. You know, a couple years after uh, Pepe Lamoco, but uh, yeah, this one um, it, it was another one where it was obviously a first time watch, and uh, it really kind of crystallized again for me later. Uh, I had trouble with the Simone character for a while, um, but I I think just the it, an amazing ending. I got. I'm not going to uh, spoil, but just the the pull away shot. And the the shot of the crowd, I actually rewound it a few times. Um, I think as far as really crystallizing uh, poetic realism, I got a lot of the poetry here. And again, knowing that it is written by Du Vivier, uh, that um, I, I think informs that. I mean, there's some lines in here, and a lot of it comes from Simone as um, the character who, uh, Cabrassad, I believe it is, he has some lines like, you know, a worry, uh, kids are a worry if you have them, a regret if you don't, 
uh, which I think is just a, a lovely, lovely line about having kids. And later about aging, he says, you know, being old and ugly is one thing, but there's a limit. Um, so there's a lot of just that coverage of the, you know, the, the aging. Um, I, I think there are some uh, influences like it, this almost looks like the same set as Carnival in Flanders, uh, the Fader film. Uh, it's just a really kind of open space, really large um, columns and, uh, you know, lots of space, a lot, uh, tall ceilings. It almost looks like a castle. Um, so just an interesting and, the, you know, the place where they eat. It's uh, just a large, uh, large area. So people moving through uh, this space, very, very, uh, very nice. And, um, yeah, I, I think there's a – I'm just going to mention, again, on the poetic side, there is a – uh, dictation that happens for a letter. And again, it just to me is, you know, I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, there's your poetry. Um, you know, if you're, it's, uh, you know, if you're going to go in, into that uh, kind of trying to define poetic realism, um, you know, it's, there's a lot of lines here you could say kind of point to that. And again, it's the last film of uh, the 30s for him in his kind of great period. So, um, yeah, I, I was taken uh, by this one. I, I don't know if, more more than the others, I wouldn't say. I kind of have them all on a, on a similar plane. I think they uh, certainly best um, the films in the, you know, the Eclipse series that we've watched so far. Even I, I think some of the later ones we'll mention, um, some great ones here I'd love to see come out. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of a, you know, even to the, the last shot there, kind of a, a nice uh, bookend to uh, his, his 30s work. But what, what did you think, Aaron? Uh, guys, this is the greatest French film. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, excuse me, I gotta go fix my roof. <laughs> I might go out there with you. Um, no, this I, I think it's very good. I, this one's pretty high concept, actually. If you really think about Actors Retirement Center mm -hmm. and uh, and like what you said, Trevor, about it really reflecting uh, the the end of theatrical uh, or the, the theatrical era and and they actually get to kind of th rub their nose or, or turn their nose up against the the film as a, a lesser a lesser uh, art and of course de Vivier would would argue against that and that this might be his statement yeah. but uh, of course he also worked in the theater too that's uh, he, he i don't know what he's saying here uh, so yeah of of the three that we're talking about today i'd say this is the one i liked the least but that doesn't mean it's bad it's actually quite good uh, I'd say even exceptional. Uh, I think the ensemble is terrific. I think they, we have a, a great villain. Um, I, I guess, again, sort of an anti-hero, but uh, although we probably don't root for him like we do Pepe. Uh, maybe this is Pepe if he decided to be an actor and uh, 30 years later he's still... Uh, still, <laughs> still trolling uh, around thinks, and picking up the chicks. <laughs> still thinks he's, he's got it, but... Uh, right. uh, no, I, I think it was it was quite good. Uh, I, I, um, by the way, um, you mentioned that this was an original... Uh, uh, De Vivier uh, screenplay. What's interesting to me is that uh, all, the, this, you're right. He didn't write all his work uh, as original. He did like to adapt, but uh, this La Bella Quip and then also Dance Program, which we'll be talking about on the Eclipse Viewer, and that's one I think you guys are going to really like. Uh, he wrote those as well. Um, this one with Charles Spack. Um, so, so yeah, I think there's something to be said that his own original works uh, were were very high quality because three of the of the big ones are two of the three that we're talking about today. And one of the two talking about next week, uh, were, were him. So. Yeah. 
Yeah. Any uh, any other thoughts that uh, folks have? We um, it's the last film we're going to talk about. We're just going to kind of talk about his uh, his later work again. Any any final thoughts on uh, La Fin du Jour? Just just the handsomeness of the production. I mean, if you go back to mm-hmm. the kind of you know still there's a certain uh, I don't know what what is the word, but the the quality you know the the dissolves the editing the you know the music and this this is just such a a, a richly realized and finely attuned production here so it's just you know the lighting i mean all all, all the details are are really spot on you know david goldare going back to the beginning of this uh, era of duvivier's filmmaking you know, still feels like an early talkie, uh, even though there's some very nice camera shots. This one here just feels glowing and rich and, and, and just so nicely realized, you know. And so, you know, de Vivier is absolutely in his prime. And you, you just think about the, the time and setting, 1939, uh, the end of the day, uh, to, to translate mm-hmm. the title, uh, the I rules know, of the yeah. game. I mean, uh, apocalypse yeah. and terror are just right on the horizon. And so... Pretty bleak. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of putting it in this historical context. Uh, I guess you just sort of have to put it in its place and time, and then the profundity and the significance of what's happening here just sinks in all the more. So, uh, yeah, I think it is. It, it's the end of an era uh, it, with this film, and, and Duvivier's career, as, as you've already kind of described, will go through some ups and downs, but this kind of you know hot streak that he'd been on kind of, you know, reaches its culmination probably with this film or maybe there's one or two after i'm not sure exactly what the the schedule was but but this is pretty close to the end of that of that phase of of, of not only his career but french cinema in general i mean there would be a mm-hmm. rebound and there would be a, a new growth and a new chapters but uh, uh this is the end of the golden age really right here and it's really about aging too so yeah. it's it appropriate uh, but uh, was it Interesting is is this one of the of the few we've talked about today and on the Eclipse viewer? I think it's even though it's pessimistic, it's not as not as dark as the others. No, there uh, so, is an uplift at the end, definitely. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, I, I do see. I, I agree with you that De Vivier was very. I, I think polished might be a good word for this one. It's it's very a clean production, and I and I agree. I think he was a master at this time, and if not for that terrible war who knows what uh, what he w- would have been capable of but now n- not to dismiss his later works he did have some some fine moments and i think panique stands up against the, the best of his work but or stands up with the best of his work but yeah i, I agree this is kind of the uh, the the final uh, great one so of, of the 30s sure yeah any any other uh, thoughts kind of just on the uh, his later work aaron that you wanted to mention uh, you know, I, I, he did a lot of adaptations again. Uh, we mentioned Anna Karenina, uh, and he did uh, Don Camillo. Uh, so he he didn't. I think he changed his style a little bit. He he wasn't. Although I think he always was a little bit pessimistic. It, it wasn't quite as as dire as the, these few or the, the the ones from the '30s, especially the late '30s. But uh, and maybe that's because society changed and you know, the war ended and and things got a little better. But I, I think uh, it's it's worth checking out. There's some that I, I want to see. I do want to see the Maria October, which is not out uh, in America, and uh, and a few others. But uh, but I think uh, pretty much as far as his late work, from what I understand, Panic is the high point, and the others are serviceable. He he did he was a, a quality working director, but not quite the star. Uh, I think it had burned uh, it burned out a little bit uh, at least, and, and maybe that's why he was forgotten because he did kind of. 
uh, you know, think of like a, a baseball player who has a great five years and then 10 mediocre years. You know, you might not think of him as, uh, as such a great, but, uh, and it doesn't, but, doesn't seem like he has the kind of, uh, bon vivant personality of like, of like a Jean Renoir where not only does Renoir make great films, but he himself is a, a very colorful figure. I mean, you, th- you think about the, the, uh, kind of film intros that Jean Renoir did later oh, on sure. in life where he kind of looks back and kind of gives a little spoken word intro to his films. And of course, Criterion has featured a lot of those. And so yeah. it's made the director himself. Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's made I the, every film. the director a personality <laughs> yeah. where you're just intrigued by anything that has Jean Renoir's name on it. And, you know, we've already said, you know, Papal and Moco directed by Julian de Vivier, uh, Julian who, whatever, you know, but <laughs> I, I really, you know, to whatever degree our collective <laughs> groanings can can uh, influence Criterion or some other distributor to say, "Hey, can we give this guy a little bit of a higher profile in uh, in uh, Region One, <laughs> because uh, or Region Eight, whatever it is, we yeah. we we really <laughs> need to uh, see more of these films or make them more publicly or conveniently accessible, streaming, disc, whatever, disc preferable. But uh, th- these are just such rich beautiful films that I, I i think they're being deprived of people who'd really appreciate them because they are not region free or the right. import fees or whatever just the fact that you just can't you know conveniently click an order um but they they're they're just really there's nothing lacking in these films that would say they're not quite worth uh putting out there yeah, agreed. Well, and one thing I'll add on there, too, David, is for people who don't buy DVDs, you know, who are just Blu-ray um, only, and I understand the, the rationale behind that. There's plenty out there, but they're not going to see a, a lot of these French 1930s films yet because they're they're not available. You know, Pepe mm-hmm. Lamoco is not on Blu-ray. Um, Baudu Saved from Drowning, not on Blu-ray. Yeah, a lot of, a lot um, of Renoir's best are not available. I think yeah. we've got, what the, we've yeah, got the River true. and we've got Rules of the Game. I think that's about it, right? You can buy a Blu-ray of The Grand Illusion, I believe. Is oh, yeah, that right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Studio Canal yeah. has Canal it. Hell. So at least, at least that's there. But... Yeah. Um, but, you but those know, are just yeah, mountain peaks, which are great. But they, they really become so much yeah. better once you put them in the context of everything else that was going on in French cinema. Uh, the more, whatever, pedestrian, ordinary re- releases, which are in themselves spectacular. So, yeah, I'm I'm just such a big fan. And I, I'm just eager to hear the rest of this series as it, as it proceeds forward, Aaron. So thanks hmm. for putting it together, cool. Aaron and Mark. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us. It's it's fabulous uh, to to do this. Um, I you know I, I think what I'll do is uh, you know we still have some more Duvivier upcoming uh, the Eclipse Viewer series a couple more films there. Uh, David kind of let us in. Trevor, do you want to just uh, preview the the last two uh, films in the Eclipse Viewer the next episode? Oh boy, I wasn't prepared. Oh. <laughs> just a second. <laughs> I haven't watched them yet. I'll tell you. It'll that. be awesome. Uh, oh. It, it will be great. I'm, I'm, I'm convinced. What are they? Incarnated Ball and La Tête de Nome, which yeah. is earlier. Yeah. I don't know anything about them. I think Harry Bowers in both of them. Is that right? He's in all four. <laughs> he of those is. He is. <laughs> but, yeah. but I will, I will just say that I, that's kind of a very. Po-
poor endorsement, uh, uh, but my excitement is is large. I've I've really loved getting to know Duvivier's work, and I'll just uh, endorse everything that David just said. There's there's just some phenomenal stuff going on at this time period. All of it's worthwhile, and Duvivier has been exciting. It's been refreshing. Um, again, his films breathe. They're they're like summer air. You know, mm. they're 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 just fantastic. And so I'm. I haven't watched the last two films yet in the in the set, but I'm very excited to, and I have no doubt that there will be a lot of um, rich things to to discover and to discuss when we get there. Hey, and I'll just throw as I've got uh, La Femme du Jour playing on my device over here. Uh, look for the connection with Wes Anderson's Moonrise Kingdom, all you younger listeners out there. There, there is a scene that might be reminiscent of uh, of the. Uh, the scouts there so interesting oh, i'll yeah. have to ask you about that oh, oh yeah yeah okay i, I got it yeah I, i'll just well as far as the clips viewer uh dance program i i think i think i put a couple of these films on a pedestal so i'll say that that one i i really think that's going to knock it out of the park for you guys and i think actually trevor i'd be curious if if to revisit your thoughts on poetic realism after you see that because i, I think that one also embodies the uh, the spirit i guess okay and uh, and also as far as just de Vivier and his reputation i i think he's seen as uh, pepe lamoco is pretty well known and of course it was hugely popular and and i think it's, and it was hugely influential just not just on noir but on a lot of classic Hollywood films, other French films, definitely on Carnet. But I, I think also Duvivier's been thought of as like a one-hit wonder just because that one is the one that people remember. You know, that's if you go to IMDb or Wikipedia, that'll probably be the first one that comes up. So I think just giving more texture to his career is valuable. So so hopefully, and, and I'm not saying that we're going to move mountains and get all these, uh, these DVD companies to release his work, but... But I'm glad you guys agree that uh, these are worth uh, worth viewing, and and I'll also say that the Pathé restorations are terrific. They are of, really of these. Nice. So hopefully, uh, <coughs> Criterion uh, can get somebody can get a hold of them. <laughs> yeah, even yeah, well, getting Pepe Lamoco on Blu-ray would be nice because I I really mm-hmm. felt yeah there's a little bit of a difference. I mean I yeah. I like my Pepe Lamoco DVD, but just to get that extra resolution, that that extra glow or richness. Uh, precision uh, would would be a real treat and and i think a lot of viewers would really really dig that film even if it's the only duvivier they ever watched yeah yeah it's an older dvd and it's it it does show its its age i think it, in fact I, I part of it i watched the film struck and the film struck looked better it, it was not an hd i could tell but it was it looked cleaner than the dvd so. interesting but i think that's just the quality of the uh, the transfer versus dvd yeah well, that's our that's Julien de Vivier, uh, really kind of a, the the middle portion here as we're talking about it and leading into uh, the Eclipse Viewer uh, number two. Um, so I hope everyone enjoyed yeah. listening. Uh, David, wanted to thank you and Trevor for joining us. Uh, where can folks find you online, David? We'll start with you. Well, I pretty much do all my stuff through Criterion Cast these days, so uh, just find me there. Excellent, uh, and I, I, as I understand, you finished up 1968 on your your Criterion Reflections writing there, yeah, getting yeah. into 69. I am into 69. Uh, watched. Uh, uh, Speaking about of the end of a decade, yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> Dillinger is dead. Uh, Marco Ferrari's Dillinger is dead is the next one up in my queue. But I'll, I have to say that that film kind of just stopped me in my tracks. I'll have to find my wits and write about it at some point, or podcast about it, or whatever. But 
that film really moved me. So I'm a little bit of a hiatus from blogging. Um, happy to get back in the podcasting groove. Uh, we'll be doing the uh, the uh, part two of the Duvivier series. And then we just have two Eclipse sets, uh, post-war Kurosawa and late Ozu. So Trevor and I are in the truly in the home stretch here with the Eclipse Viewer uh, podcast. But I've got some other plans and, and other ideas, and we'll be coming at you soon enough. Very cool. Great to have you, David. And Trevor, where can folks find you? Well, uh, you can find me um, with David at the Eclipse Viewer. That's um, always fun. I'm kind of, it, it's an exciting milestone that we'll be finishing, but it's also kind of sad. It is. Yeah, bittersweet. <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. Um, but other than that, on Twitter, I am at MOOCs, M-O-O-K-S-E. And I, I write at the MOOCs and the Gripes about books and movies. Excellent. Well, well read, well versed, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we're going to have to put you guys in the uh, the podcasters retirement center. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Well, there's there's there should be a Berlanka, so it's not over yet, right? Well, yeah. well, we we will play it as it comes. So uh, yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll 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 believe that Berlanka when I'm holding it in my hand. There. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. with you. Yep. No no fatalism for the uh, the the eclipse viewer. Aaron, where can no, definitely where can folks find you? Uh, well, right here, even though we, we don't do it as much, uh, and also on Criterion Cast. And uh, yeah, we've been grooving with uh, Criterion now. I think we're already at 13 episodes, so uh, having fun with that. It's a change of pace. It's a little easier for me. Uh, I like that. Yeah. Uh, it's a little a little bit of fun. Try to throw some uh, some games. You'll, you'll hear on episode 13 a, a pretty crazy and, and pretty perverse game, so uh, so don't be offended. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. And that's it. More more perversity on criteria now. I like that. It's a good tagline. <laughs> so <laughs> when you can find me, I'm Mark Herney, H-U-R-N-E, at Mark Herney on Twitter, Letterboxd. You can find the show, Criterion Close-Up. Again, we're on a, a monthly schedule at Criterion CU uh, on Twitter, uh, Facebook slash Criterion Close-Up and uh, CriterionCloseUp.com. I uh, just wanted to briefly plug uh, what we've got upcoming. Uh, it looks like we were going to delve into the World Cinema Box set, but we put that on hold for a little bit. So we're actually going to hit um, our plans to hit um, some Jacques Demy next, and we'll be talking about the Umbrellas of Cherbourg uh, coming in May again with our, our monthly schedule. Um, I also just wanted to thank, again, Republic of Images, a history of French filmmaking from Alan Williams with some, some notes. Uh, so just plugging that there. And, uh, yeah, thank everyone for joining us and listening to Criterion Close-Up. We'll talk to you soon.